Well, I was talking to a friend of mine this week about the difference between parents and grandparents. And every one of us now that have had kids, we've experienced it in our own lives. We've seen the, just the metamorphosis that our parents have gone through from the time they raised us to how they are now as grandparents. And it's just like we, we're looking at these people and we're a little confused because they're not the same people. And, and they may look the same, just aged a little bit, but they are not the same people at all. What they allow their grandchildren to get away with and what they allow their grandchildren to do is not at all what they would allow their children to do. And so we, we started talking about this. And he's like, yeah, my, my parents, they were, they were rough on me. And, and one time I charged at my dad and he grabbed me by the ear and threw me across. He's like, I don't even know how. But he like threw me across the room. My son charged at him. He's knocked down, acts like he can get beaten up. He never let me win. We were wrestling. They eat ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I was never allowed to have ice cream. And it got me thinking to some of the exchanges that, that I had um, with, with my own parents who may have said at times I was a challenging child. I have no idea where they would base that off of. I don't, I don't know. I was thinking through some of the experiences that I had with, with my parents. And one of, the, one of the stories I remembered is one time my mom and I were in the car and we were having a spirited discussion. And, um, you know, sometimes in the midst of spirited discussions, people get passionate about certain points. And she saw things incorrectly one way, and I saw things correctly another way. And we were just, just having a healthy dialogue about that. And you've got to understand, I come from a family where every time my uncle and my dad would talk on the phone, we thought they hated each other. Uh, just because one would get loud and the other would get a little louder, and we'd be at the other end of the house hearing everything. We'd be like, Dad, why are you so mad? He's like, I'm not mad. What are you talking about? And we're like, well, the whole neighborhood right now is calling the police, worried, like, somebody's about to, and he's like, no, we're just, we're just talking. So that's, that's in my DNA. I can't help it. It's just in my DNA. So mother and I were having a spirited conversation in the car one day, and she saw things incorrectly one way. I saw things correctly another way. She let me know I was incorrect. I let her know she was incorrect. She let me know I was incorrect. I let her know she was incorrect. And it just kept going back and forth. You know, a conversation every parent loves to have with their kid who knows more than them. And she finally reached a bit of a breaking point. And mother was a godly woman, so she didn't swear very often. I mean, once or twice I got it out of her, she'll deny it to this day, but I know I did. <laughs> and she turned around at a red light and said, Brian, you need to remember something. God gave you one mouth and two ears for a reason. And then she said something else. And then I just let it be silent for about 30 seconds. And I said, hey, mom, she said, yeah. I said, you need to remember something. God gave you one mouth and two ears for a reason as well. And I just got to tell you, for a woman who God gave one mouth and two ears, she did not stop talking for the rest of that trip. And then a little bit after we got home, and then she relayed the story to my dad, and then he started talking for a really long time. And I'm just saying, out of everybody in that house, I did the most listening that day, whether I wanted to or not. It was an earful. Hey, this morning we're going to continue our look at the book of James, what we started last week. And, and as we saw last week, developing our faith sometimes happens in some unexpected ways. And James started his book, as we saw last week, that when we experience trouble and hardship in our life, 
That doesn't mean there's an absence of faith. It doesn't mean that there's a lack of faith. It doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong. It actually is an opportunity to reveal to us the state of our faith. And and we sometimes struggle with that concept and we wrestle through. So that's what we saw last week. And today we're going to see some more surprising ways that God develops our faith. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us. We utilize an app called the Bible app. It's a free resource. It's great. Whatever Whatever device you're using, just go to the App Store and you can download it there. Certainly, you can use a paper Bible as well, um, but it enables you to highlight things, take notes. If you're streaming, thanks so much for joining us. The verses are available uh, below, and if you're here and, and you don't have access to the technology or a Bible with you, the verses will be available on the screens. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team at Lakeside, and we are so glad that you're spending part of your Sunday with us today. We're going to continue our look In the book of James, it's a book in the New Testament, something we're calling How to Live Your Life, because James is just full of practical insights and how we can take those steps closer to become more like Jesus, the process that God wants everybody to take. So thanks so much for joining us. We're going to start this morning in James 1, starting in verse 19, where we read these words. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, And slow to anger. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And what's fascinating to me is is our culture right now is the direct opposite of this. And that's not unique to our times. It's just we have more platforms and and more things available for this. But the, the goal for those of us who follow Jesus is to resist the cultural norms, and it's to make sure that we do our best to be people who are not quick to speak, who are not quick to react, who are not quick to say things, but instead who are quick to listen. Be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. And here's what's fascinating. When we take the time to to hear other people out, when we take the time to listen to other people's perspectives, when we take the time not to just engage on that first thing that we hear that we think, all right, I want to fight, and everybody right now is a culture warrior, and everybody wants to be a little revolution, but when we instead take the time to just pause when we hear something that's either offensive or something we don't agree with or something we're not even unsure about, and rather than immediately offer our perspective, but instead hear the other person out, and ask some clarifying questions, and even if it's a, it's a point that we disagree with, asking more questions to get to the heart of the reason for why they have formed that conclusion. What we do is we tend to not get as upset. We tend to not get as upset that they disagree with us. We tend to not get as upset with, with what they've held to, and we become, in the process, slower to become angry. And what's fascinating is for the rest of chapter 1 in the book of James, we're going to see why this matters. We're going to see why this is so important. Because you might think to yourself, well, this is just a life skill. This is just a life skill. This is just a highly emotional IQ. This is just ways to advance and work. This is just ways to be a better person, a better neighbor. But what does this really have to do with my spirituality? What does this really have to do with my pursuit of Jesus? And the answer is everything. The answer is everything, and you're going to see why. But know this, 
right on the heels of saying, you need to understand that you're going to experience hardship, and when you experience hardship, it's an opportunity to reveal your faith. That's the first thing that we kind of scratch our minds about and say, wow, I, I didn't really, I don't always understand that in the moment when I'm going through the hard times. And now here, right on the heels of that, James introduces this concept, that we as people who follow Jesus need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And this isn't natural for many of us. Some of us just because we're, we're wired that way. I remember growing up, I hated the game red light, green light. I hated it. It was horrible. Green light was awesome. Red light, stop and stand there. Woo, this is exciting. What a great game this is. And then you get the person who's like, green light, red light, green light, red light, and you're like, I quit. Like, it's just not even. I'm not a puppet, all right? I'm not going not gonna to sit here and entertain you. I'm just like, whatever. I lose. Woohoo. They get an extra Tootsie Roll out of the prize box. Congratulations. I'll survive. But I hated that game. I absolutely hated that game because green light was great, but red light, not fun. It wasn't fun because I hated the concept of having to slow down at anything. And I think... I think that one of the reasons that we struggle so much to hear other people out is because there's a lack of patience. Listening requires effort. It requires us to stop. It requires us to put aside the thing that we want to interject into the conversation. Listening requires humility, quite frankly, because it's elevating somebody else above our own desire, above our own perspective. And James says, here's what you need to do in your development of following Jesus. You need to be quick to hear people out. And you need to be slow to speak. And not only that, you need to be slow to become angry. Why? For the anger of man, verse 20 says, does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this, this needs to be a little nuanced because notice there's a qualifier there. The anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And I know some of you who grew up in the church, some of you know the Bible very well, you're like, oh, okay, well, what about, what about Jesus? When he went into the temple and he starts turning over tables and he makes a whip and he's swinging it around, what about, what about that? How do we... How do we qualify the perfection of Jesus with what seemingly is an outburst to us? How, do, how does that work? And here's where we have to understand that, air, that anger isn't inherently wrong. Anger isn't inherently wrong. What drives the anger, how the anger manifests itself, what we do once we're angry, all those things can be wrong. But anger in and of itself as an emotion is not wrong. Now, some of you grew up in an environment where even being angry over righteous things, even being angry over right things, was discouraged. And you were told you need to suppress that, you need to hold that down, you need to get rid of that, that there was never a positive outlet for anger. And that's not what Scripture says. 
But anger is a dangerous emotion because it can, it can take us to places in an instant that are not healthy. And that's why there's a qualifier here, that the anger of man. So while anger isn't inherently wrong, much that goes along with it is. And the motives can frequently be self-centered and can be what I want rather than what God's want, God, rather than what God wants. And when that happens, that becomes the anger of man, and that does not produce the righteousness of God. But as we saw in Jesus, there is righteous anger. As we saw that God would, would give us glimpses of throughout the Old Testament, God is holy, and God got angry. There are things that anger the heart of God, and those are the things that should anger our hearts as well. But let's make sure the things that anger our hearts are the things that anger God's hearts. And let's leave it at that. Let's make sure that when we're angry, it's because we're angry about the things that would make God angry and not because we just want to be angry. And he goes on in, in verse 21. He writes, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Which is able to save your souls. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. He says, you've made the decision to follow Jesus. Your life should look different. You don't get to just say, all right, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm going to heaven and then live like hell. No, your life should look different as a result of your decision to follow Jesus. So he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Following Jesus should compel us to change our lives. If there is not a hunger and a desire within you to make your life look more like Jesus and you claim to be a follower of Jesus then you better scratch your head and you better start asking some serious questions about whether or not you're actually following Jesus or whether or not you're following an idea of Jesus that you like and you're just accepting the parts of Jesus that you like and throwing away the parts that you don't and you're just going to do what you've just done is created your own version of Jesus, but that's not Jesus. He says, you need to throw away all filthiness and all rampant wickedness out of your life. That our lives constantly need to look more and more like Jesus and less and less like ourselves. And how do we do that? Well, he tells us, receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Scripture is God's, God's revealed heart to us. Scripture is God's heart revealed to us. And it challenges us, and it corrects us, and it changes us. And frequently, those are not fun things to undergo. It's frequently not fun to be challenged. It's frequently not fun to change. We, we, don't, we don't like those things naturally. They, they cause effort, and if we, wanted to, if we wanted to do them naturally, we'd already be doing them. But that... That is, the, that is what we've been called to be as people who follow Jesus, that we become more and more like him. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we better know the heart of the person we're following. And the heart of the person we're following is revealed to us in Scripture. It's why every week we, we encourage you, download the Bible app, be, be engaged and be invested in Scripture. It reveals God's heart for us. Receive with meekness, with meekness. Again, we go back to this idea that we don't know everything. 
And if we're going to receive with meekness, that means that we need to hold Scripture in its rightful place, and we need to understand that God's ways are are better than ours, that God's thoughts are higher than ours, that God has more wisdom than we do. Why is this so important? Because this is able to save our souls. Because Scripture is God's revealed heart to us, and God's revealed heart to us is the story that God created us. We rebelled against Him. It took all three chapters to happen. And then God redeems and restores us through the work of His Son, Jesus. But God wants to change us to be more and more like Him in the process. We, God isn't done with us at the moment that we receive His salvation. He continues to work on us so that our lives are better, so that our lives are becoming more and more like Him, so that we're having an impact for Him in the world in which we live, so that we're impacting others with the love and the hope and the peace that we have that is in such a needed supply in this world. But God wants to do all those things through us. And then He goes on and He says this, But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It isn't enough to hear Scripture. It isn't enough to to even believe Scripture. He says you must act upon it. You must act upon it. And I'm telling you, this 18 inches is the hardest thing in our spirituality. The 18 inches from our heads to our hearts, that is the hardest thing in all of following Jesus. It's not an issue oftentimes of knowing what we should do. It's not an issue oftentimes of knowing what's right. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we just don't know. Whether it's because we just recently made the decision to follow Jesus, whether we we just made the decision to start engaging with Scripture and we haven't really dug in, whether it's it's just all those things. Sometimes it is an issue. We just don't know. And then once we once we're once the truth is exposed to us, then we've got that question, am I going to receive it with meekness? Am I going to follow it? Or am I going to do whatever I want? And, and what does that say about whether or not I follow Jesus? And then this idea, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It isn't enough just to know Scripture. It isn't enough to have all the verses memorized. It isn't enough to be able to win Bible jeopardy. It isn't enough for any of those things. You have to act upon it. You have to live it out in your life. It has to go that 18 inches from your heads to your heart because the people Jesus had the most trouble with were the people who had the most knowledge in their heads. The problem is the knowledge stayed in their head and it didn't make its way down to their heart. It's why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Because frequently, knowledge stays here. But Christianity and following Jesus has never been an exercise of how much you know. It's never been an exercise of what stays in your head. Following Jesus is all what makes its way from your head into your heart. And James says, don't deceive yourselves. It isn't enough just to hear the word. You have to actually live out what Scripture says. You have to actually live that out. And what happens is self-deception creeps in. When the knowledge all remains in your head. And the most, the most dangerous deception is self-deception. The most dangerous deception is self-deception. And he says, when it hasn't made its way into your heart, 
and you can't see it manifested in your actions and what you do, and it's all up here, and it's all what you know, but it isn't how you live, you're deceiving yourself. He goes on to describe this even further. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. What a powerful picture this is. He says if if you're somebody who just hears Scripture but you don't actually put it into practice in your life, if, if you fail, it's like you're looking at yourself in the mirror And the second you walk away from that mirror, you have instant amnesia. And you have no idea what you look like. This is is a fascinating picture. We were at camp one summer. And camp's always interesting because you get to see the students who are going to camp and and they have their little love connection for the week and you you start to see the feelings develop on Sunday night when they first look at each other, and then by Monday they're asking their friends, and they, by Tuesday, you know, they're, the groups of friends have, have converged. It's, it's wonderful. And then Friday on the ride home, they're talking about how they'll love each other forever and be Snapchat friends and uh, how they found their true love, and three weeks later they're broken up. Uh, but that's, that's always, it's always predictable, and it's always kind of fun to watch. It's just like a a Christian camp bachelor, uh, you know, it, except you get to be the host. Uh, so, and there aren't any roses. But uh, with those few exceptions, it's, it's much the same. But one year, it got even better because one of the youth pastors liked, not a student, but liked one of the camp workers, and they were going to take a date at camp. I can't make that up. It's delicious. <laughs> And what's even better is he was nervous before the date. And so he went back to the, the cabin, got out a special pair of clothes to wear on the camp date, which it doesn't matter because when you're in a cabin with a bunch of high school guys, everything smells. It's, it doesn't matter what you pull out of that bag. Nothing's going to be appealing to her. Like, you have no chance. Like, just... Just don't date at camp, whatever. Uh, so he, he, he's getting dressed, and then he goes to, the, goes to the bathroom, and he doesn't know we're following him, uh, which I realize sounds a little creepy that we're following somebody into a bathroom. I get it, but it wasn't creepy. Kind of creepy uh, in hindsight, uh, but just go with me, all right? Forgive the creepiness. Uh, we follow him into the bathroom, and he's doing his hair. He's looking at the mirror, and he looks in the mirror, and he looks down, and he's like, you got beautiful brown hair. Looks back up in the mirror, looks down. Your eyes, you're gorgeous. Looking back up in the mirror, looks down. And like we think, oh, he's practicing lines to compliment her. And he's like, you're a beautiful man, and she's going to love spending time with you today. We're like, he's giving himself a pep talk. (laughs) He's giving himself a pep talk about what he sees in the mirror, and then he looks down. He's talking himself up. And a nice person would have been like, guys, let's get out of here. He's nervous. He's anxious about his date. Let's, let's leave him feeling good. That's what a nice person would have done. But God didn't make me nice. And so from the hall of the bathroom, you are so beautiful, Troy. 
you are a beast of a man. And he jumps back. He's like, shut up. Get out of here. I hate you. And then for the next 15 minutes, we followed him around camp, letting him know how beautiful he was based on everything that he said from looking at himself in the mirror. That date didn't go well. And uh, he, he may blame me to this day. But, but the idea is, have you ever seen a sketch artist I mean, that's fascinating to me. Somebody witnesses a bankrupt. Well, they don't, I don't even know if they need them anymore now because everybody's got a camera on their phone. But there used to be, back. for those of you who are under 30, track with me because this might be a foreign concept to you. When I was growing up, somebody would rob a bank and not everybody had a phone with an amazing camera at the time to record the bank robbery and then just send that data to the police. So they would have to go to the police and based on the five seconds they saw a face before somebody put a ski mask on, they would describe that person to a professional artist who would render a sketch that oftentimes looked like somebody. It's amazing the recall that we just naturally have. You might not think about it, but if you don't think about it and just when we see see somebody's face. It's amazing the recall we have. And that's the point that James is using here. It's like somebody looking in their face. It doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever that somebody looks in the mirror, they know what they look like, and then they close. No. He says, you remember what you look like. You remember what you look like. You remember your appearance. And if you are somebody who follows Jesus in the same way it makes no sense for somebody to look at themselves in the mirror and have no idea what they look like, it makes no sense for you to engage with Scripture and then just say, eh, I'm going to do whatever I want anyways. It doesn't work. It doesn't compute. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And notice, he's now taking this, this idea of looking, and instead of looking into a mirror and forgetting, he says, now, whoever looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. And I just want to ask you, if you're following Jesus, do you realize that following Jesus is just that? It's liberty. See, the enemy's come and he's convinced us, oh, following God's restrictive. Following God, it just kills all your joy. And you can't have any fun. And you can't do what you really want to do. You can't experience the best things that this world and this life have to offer. If you follow God, it's going to be a life of boredom. It's going to be a life where you're constantly restricted. It's going to be a life where you constantly feel like you're missing out. That's what the enemy's come, and he's tried to convince us of that, and maybe he's convinced you of it. Just the opposite is true. The restrictions that God puts in place are for our own good. And they're a path for us to experience the most love, the most joy, and the most peace in this life. And if you are begrudging the restrictions that God has put in place, and if you think that following God is just restrictive and it's not actually a path to liberty and a path to freedom, then you're seeing it all wrong. That following God is incredibly freeing. And not only that, but blessings await those who act accordingly. That blessing awaits those who act accordingly. 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. See, if you think you're doing well, if you think you're a mature follower of Jesus, if you think you're doing this Christian life thing pretty good, and yet you can't control what you say, your religion is worthless. Now, that's just not, that's not me saying that. That's Scripture's take. You ever meet somebody that just flies off the handle and later on, they're just like, I just, I, I just can't control what I say when I'm angry. I just, I just can't control what I say. Well, Scripture tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, this isn't just an issue of, oh, I get mad and I just fly off the handle and sometimes I say some things I regret. No, 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 no. What Scripture tells us is that if you can't get control of the words you speak, you need to do some serious inventorying of what's in your heart. Because your religion is worthless. And why is it worthless? Well, in one regard, because again, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what did we see earlier? That truly following Jesus is the process where we allow the truth to not just penetrate our head, but move the 18 inches down to our heart and to change our hearts. It's not enough just to intellectually know that Jesus lived and He died on the cross. It's not enough just to have an intellectual knowledge of that. It has to move beyond the intellectual phase. And it has to move to our hearts where there's an acceptance phase. And we realize that Jesus is God, that He died on the cross for our sin, that we are sinners who need, who need to be redeemed. And that we want to live for God. It's not an intellectual exercise. And one of the things you have to ask yourself is if you fly off the handle constantly and you say things constantly that you, have to, that you regret, that you have to go back and apologize for, well, then you need to really wrestle with James 1.26 because what it says is your religion is worthless because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So maybe it hasn't gone that 18 inches from your head into your heart. And then he concludes with this. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the contrast. We've seen religion that is worthless. And now we see religion that God desires. And what's fascinating about the religion that God desires is that this is what will really change the world. It's not the argument. It's not winning a soundbite. It's not any of those things. But this is what will really change the world. Religion that God desires will change the world. And how can we change the world? How can we change the world? Well, we're given the answer to that. By visiting orphans. by visiting widows, and by, by growing in our own conduct. And you might scratch your head. You might say, how's that going to change the world? Because none of that's going to be noticed. And in an era and in a culture which celebrates celebrity, 
what we see is God celebrates consistency. While everyone else celebrates celebrity, what God celebrates is consistency. And what God is looking for out of you is not for you to have a million Instagram followers. What God is looking for out of you is not for you to have the most popular podcast. What God's looking for out of you is not for you to lead the biggest Bible study. What God is looking for out of you and out of your life as somebody who follows him is consistency. And it's your faith revealed in how you treat the least of these. It's how you treat those who are struggling. It's how you treat those who are hurting. It's how you go and you encourage those who've lost somebody. It's how you look out for those who have no one else to look out for them. It's how you live your life life day in and day out. That's what God desires. It's consistency, not celebrity. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to celebrate the things that our culture celebrates in celebrity, or are we going to celebrate what God celebrates in consistency? It's one of the reasons I love Lakeside is the generosity of the people of Lakeside. In the past two and a half years, we've given thousands of dollars, over $10,000 to people in our community who are struggling with rent, a utility bill, who need food, who need assistance. And I know the skeptic might hear that and scratch their head. And the scam artist might hear that and scratch their head and be like, great. And the skeptic might scratch their head and be like, really, with all the government assistance available? And what do we do? I mean, we vet these people. We have systems in place. We're generous, but we're not stupid. So we ask questions, and they have to reveal things. We pay directly to other sources. And there's going to be sometimes we're going to be scammed. We just know that. There are going to be sometimes we can vet people to the best of our ability and we'll be scammed. But our conclusion is that's on them, and they'll answer for that one day. That's not on us. But your generosity makes that possible. I think back to last fall where we... In just one month's time, fed over a couple thousand people with the amount of food that we brought in here on Sunday mornings. You see, my point is this. What really matters to God is that consistency. It's never about Lakeside being the biggest church. It's never about us having the biggest presence online. None of that stuff matters. But what it is about, it's us reaching our region and impacting as many people as we possibly can in the Lakeshore region with the hope of Jesus. And the best way to do that is the consistency in the lives of the followers of Jesus. That we day in and day out live in. And sometimes, oftentimes, that's never going to be noticed by the masses. But it's going to be noticed by your creator. And it's what he's called us to. This is the faith that God desires. That we live consistent lives. And how's that possible? 
by being quick to listen, by being slow to speak, by being slow to become angry and realizing it's not enough just to hear the truth. But we have to live it out. So let's live it out this week, day in and day out. God, I pray that we would be people who do what you celebrate and let us live consistent lives. I pray that we would encourage all we encounter, that we'd help those who need help. I pray, God, that we would be people who are quick to listen, even when we disagree. That our heart would be a heart to understand and a heart to ask questions. I pray that we'd be slow to speak, slow to become angry. And I pray that we would not deceive ourselves by merely hearing what your word has to say, but God, that that process of moving it from our heads to our hearts would take place in each of us. Change us, God, first, and then use us for your work and your glory, we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen.